She walks by the sea, counting shells on the beach. One, two, three. She picks them up one by one, collecting their ocean suns. She puts them inside of her pocket and walks them back to the town. And she says to all of the people, I collect. Did all the sounds I collected all the sounds Hello, and welcome back to Collected Sounds. I'm your host, Amy L, and I'm really glad you're here. This story is called The Dead Smile by F. Marion Crawford. There are four chapters to this story, and I'm reading each one as a separate episode. I have already released chapters 1 through 3, so if you've not heard those yet, please go back and download those and listen before listening to this one. I hope you have been enjoying this creepy tale. Let me know what you think of this one, or if you have any ideas for future stories you'd like me to tackle. You can reach me at collectedsounds at gmail.com, and there's more contact info in the show notes. Are you sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. Chapter 4 The old clock in Nurse MacDonald's tower struck midnight. From her room, she could hear the creaking chains and weights in their box in the corner of the staircase, and overhead the jarring of the rusty lever that lifted the hammer. She had heard it all her life. It struck eleven strokes clearly, and then came the twelfth, with a dull half-stroke, as though the hammer were too weary to go on and had fallen asleep against the bell. The old cat got up from the bag footstool and stretched itself, and Nurse MacDonald opened her ancient eyes and looked slowly around the room by the dim light of the night lamp. She touched the cat with her crutch stick, and it lay down upon her feet. She drank a few drops from her cup and went to sleep again. But downstairs, Sir Gabriel sat straight up as the clock struck, for he had dreamed a fearful dream of horror and his heart stood still, till he awoke at its stopping, and it beat again furiously with his breath, like a wild thing set free. No Akram had ever known fear waking, but sometimes it came to Sir Gabriel in his sleep. He pressed his hands to his temples as he sat up in bed, and his hands were icy cold, but his head was hot. The dream faded far, and in its place became the master thought that racked his life. With the thought also came the sick twisting of his lips in the dark that would have been a smile. Far off, Evelyn Warburton dreamed that the dead smile was on her mouth and awoke, starting with a little moan, her face in her hands, shivering. But Sir Gabriel struck a light and got up and began to walk up and down in his great room. It was midnight and he had barely slept an hour, and in the north of Ireland the winter nights are long. I shall go mad, he said to himself, holding his forehead. He knew that it was true. For weeks and months, the possession of the thing had grown upon him like a disease, till he could think of nothing without thinking first of that. And now, all at once, it outgrew his strength, and he knew that he must be its instrument or lose his mind, that he must do the deed he hated and feared, if he could fear anything or that something would snap in his brain and divide him from life 
while he was yet alive. He took the candlestick in his hand, the old-fashioned heavy candlestick that had always been used by the head of the house. He did not think of dressing, but went as he was in his silk nightclothes and his slippers, and he opened the door. Everything was very still in the great old house. He shut the door behind him and walked noiselessly on the carpet through the long corridor. A cool breeze blew over his shoulder and blew the flame of his candle straight out from him. Instinctively, he stopped and looked around, but all was still, and the upright flame burned steadily. He walked on, and instantly a strong draft was behind him, almost extinguishing the light. It seemed to blow him on his way, ceasing whenever he turned, coming again when he went on, invisible, icy. Down the great staircase to the echoing hall he went, seeing nothing but the flaring flame of the candle standing away from him over the guttering wax, while the cold wind blew over his shoulder and through his hair. On he passed through the open door into the library, dark with old books and carved bookcases, on through the door in the shelves with painted shelves on it and the imitated backs of books so that one needed to know where to find it and it shut itself after him with a soft click. He entered the low-arched passage, and though the door was shut behind him and fitted tightly in its frame, still the cold breeze blew the flame forward as he walked. And he was not afraid, but his face was very pale, and his eyes were wide and bright, looking before him, seeing already in the dark air the picture of the thing beyond. But in the chapel he stood still, his hand on the little turning stone tablet in the back of the stone altar. On the tablet were the engraved words, Clavis Sepulchri Clarice Morum Dominorum Ocrum." the key to the vault of the most illustrious lords of Ockram. Sir Gabriel paused and listened. He fancied that he heard a sound far off in the great house where all had been so still. But it did not come again. He waited for the last, and he looked at the low iron door. Beyond it, down the long descent, lay his father, uncoffined, six months dead, corrupt, terrible in his clinging shroud. The strangely preserving air of the vault could not yet have done its work completely. But on the thing's ghastly features, with their half-dried, open eyes, there would still be the frightful smile with which the man died the smile that haunted. As the thought crossed Sir Gabriel's mind, he felt his lips writhing, and he struck his own mouth in wrath with the back of his hand so fiercely that a drop of blood ran down his chin, and another, and more, falling back in the gloom upon the chapel pavement. But still his bruised lips twisted themselves. He turned the tablet by this simple secret. It needed no safer fastening, for each Akram had been coffined in pure gold, and had the door been wide open, there was not a man in Tyrone brave enough to go down to that place. Saving Gabriel Akram himself, with his angel's face and his thin white hands and his sad, unflinching eyes. He took the great old key and set it to the lock of the iron door, and the heavy, rattling noise echoed down the descent beyond the footsteps as if a watcher had stood behind the iron and were running away within, with heavy, dead feet. And though he was standing still, 
The cool wind was from behind him and blew the flame of the candle against the iron panel. He turned the key. Sir Gabriel saw that his candle was short. There were new ones on the altar with long candlesticks, and he lit one and left his own burning on the floor. As he set it down on the pavement, his lips began to bleed again, and another drop fell upon the stones. He drew the iron door and pushed it back against the chapel wall so that it should not shut of itself while he was within. And the horrible draft of the sepulchre came up out of the depths in his face, foul and dark. He went in, but though the fetid air met him, yet the flame of the tall candle was blown straight from him against the wind while he walked down the easy incline with steady steps, his loose slippers slapping the pavement as he trod. He shaded the candle with his hand, and his fingers seemed to be made of wax and blood as the light shone through them. And in spite of him, the earthly draft forced the flame forward till it was blue over the black wick, and it seemed as if it must go out. But he went straight on with shining eyes. The downward passage was wide, and he could not always see the walls by the struggling light. But he knew when he was in the place of death, by the larger, drearier echo of his steps in the greater space, and by the sensation of a distant blank wall. He stood, almost enclosing the flame of the candle in the hollow of his hand. He could see a little, for his eyes were growing used to the gloom. Shadowy forms were outlined in the dimness, where the beers of the Akrams stood crowded together, side by side, each with its straight, shrouded corpse, strangely preserved by the dry air, like the empty shell that the locust sheds in summer. And a few steps before him he saw clearly the dark shape of headless Sir Vernon's iron coffin, and he knew that nearest to it lay the thing he sought. He was as brave as any of those dead men had been, and they were his father's, and he knew that sooner or later he should lie there himself, beside Sir Hugh, slowly drying to a parchment shell. But he was still alive, and he closed his eyes a moment, and three great drops stood on his forehead. Then he looked again, and by the whiteness of the winding sheet he knew his father's corpse, for all the others were brown with age. And moreover, the flame of the candle was blown toward it. He made four steps till he reached it, and suddenly the light burned straight and high, shedding a dazzling yellow glare upon the fine linen that was all white, save over the face, and where the joined hands were laid on the breast. And at those places, ugly stains had spread, darkened with outlines of the features and the tight clasped fingers. There was a frightful stench of drying death. Sir Gabriel looked down. Something stirred behind him, softly at first, then more noisily, and something fell to the stone floor with a dull thud and rolled up to his feet. He started back and saw a withered head lying almost face up on the pavement, grinning at him. He felt the cold sweat standing on his face, and his heart beat painfully. For the first time in his life, the evil thing which men call fear was getting a hold of him, checking his heartstrings as a cruel driver checks a quivering horse, clawing at his backbone with icy hands, lifting his hair with freezing breath, climbing up and gathering in his midriff with laden weight. Yet presently he bit his lip and bent down, holding the candle in one hand, to lift the shroud back from the head of the corpse with the other. Slowly, he lifted it. Then it clove to the half-dried skin of the face and his hand shook as if someone had struck him on the elbow. 
but half in fear, half in anger at himself, he pulled it so that it came away with a little ripping sound. He caught his breath as he held it, not yet throwing it back and not yet looking. The horror was working in him, and he felt that old Vernon Ockram was standing up in his iron coffin, headless, yet watching him with the stump of his severed neck. While he held his breath, he felt the dead smile twisting his lips. In sudden wrath at his own misery, he tossed the death-stained linen backward and looked at last. He ground his teeth lest he should shriek aloud. There it was, the thing that haunted him, that haunted Evelyn Warburton, that was like a blight on all that came near him. The dead face was blotched with dark stains, and the thin gray hair was matted about the discolored forehead. The sunken lids were half open, and the candlelight gleamed on something foul where the toad eyes had lived. But yet the dead thing smiled, as it had smiled in life. The ghastly lips were parted and drawn wide and tight upon the wolfish teeth, cursing still, and still defying hell to do its worst. Defying, cursing, and always and forever smiling, alone in the dark. Sir Gabriel opened the winding sheet where the hands were, and the blackened, withered fingers were closed upon something stained and mottled. Shivering from head to foot, but fighting like a man in agony for his life, he tried to take the package from the dead man's hold. But as he pulled at it, the claw-like fingers seemed to close more tightly, and when he pulled harder, the shrunken hands and arms rose from the corpse with a horrible look of life, following his motion. Then, as he wrenched the sealed packet loose at last, the hands fell back into their place still folded. He set down the candle on the edge of the beer to break the seals from the stout paper. And kneeling on one knee to get a better light, he read what was within, written long ago, in Sir Hugh's queer hand. He was no longer afraid. He read how Sir Hugh had written it all down, that it might perchance be a witness of evil and of his hatred. How he had loved Evelyn Warburton, his wife's sister, and how his wife had died of a broken heart with his curse upon her, and how Warburton and he had fought side by side in Afghanistan, and Warburton had fallen. But Akram had brought his comrade's wife back a full year later, and little Evelyn, her child, had been born in Akram Hall. And next, how he had wearied of the mother, and how she died like her sister, with his curse on her. And then, how Evelyn had been brought up as his niece, and how he had trusted that his son Gabriel and his daughter, innocent and unknowing, might love and marry, and the souls of the women he had betrayed might suffer another anguish before eternity was out. And, last of all, he hoped that someday, when nothing could be undone, the two might find his writing and live on, not daring to tell the truth for their children's sake and the world's word, man and wife. This he read, kneeling beside the corpse in the north vault by the light of the altar candle. And when he had read it all, he thanked God aloud that he had found the secret in time. But when he rose to his feet and looked down at the dead face, it was changed, and the smile was gone from it forever, and the jaw had fallen a little, and the tired, dead lips were relaxed. And then there was a breath behind him and close to him, not cold like that which had blown the flame of the candle as he came, but warm and human. He turned suddenly. There she stood, all in white, with her shadowy golden hair, 
for she had risen from her bed and had followed him noiselessly and had found him reading and had herself read over his shoulder. He started violently when he saw her, for his nerves were unstrung. And then he cried out her name in the still place of death. Evelyn. My brother, she answered softly and tenderly, putting out both hands to meet his. Thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoyed this story, The Dead Smile, by F. Marion Crawford. If you have any other suggestions for stories for me to read to you, please let me know by emailing me at collectedsounds at gmail.com or check out other modes of contact in the show notes. Remember, all stories must be in the public domain. There is a link to Project Gutenberg in the show notes. Also check out the scent of the day for this episode, a little Easter egg, if you will, from Sucre Bay. The Collected Sounds theme song is by Canel Ilanian. The music you hear behind the story is Bach, Book One, Prelude and Fugue Number no. 8 in E-flat minor by Carlos Gardels. You will find a link to both of these musicians in the show notes. Thank you again. Until next time.